0: You know, I was thinking about something this morning. Um, One of my favorite television shows, for those of you who know me, is The Office. And there is a um, a part in one of the episodes where the main character, Michael Scott, he says something really dumb like he does all the time. And then he says, you know, sometimes I just start a sentence and I don't know where it's going. I just hope I get there. I've learned as I preach that that's kind of what preaching is like you prepare, you know what you want to say. And then sometimes I get up here and I think I do great and I I say what I have on my notes, my preparation, I feel like really panned out. And then sometimes I get done and I look at my notes and I'm like, what was I preaching on? Not that um, what I was preaching wasn't on my heart, not that it wasn't the Holy Spirit guiding me, but sometimes the Holy Spirit, I think guides us through our preparation and sometimes the Holy Spirit guides us into something that we're not familiar with and we're not expecting. And that's not just important or true for those who preach. That is true for all of us in life. And so I was just thinking about that this morning, and it was interesting to me. I wanted to kind of share that with you. So we have been in our series in the book of Romans. Um, We did chapter 5 last week, and uh, this week we're going to cover verses 1 through 14 of chapter 6. And at the end of chapter five, it says this, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we've talked about a little bit what grace means, how it's this unmerited, undeserved favor And then we talked last week how oftentimes in Scripture, and even the way that we use it, it comes about um, in a certain way. It's a certain type of favor, and that is this supernatural assistance. We say things like that all the time. You know, through the grace of God, I was able to make it through whatever it is that we're talking about. And what we mean is by the supernatural strength and assistance of God that we don't have we were able to make it through a situation that we were originally unsure about. And so now that we kind of know about grace, and Paul has brought that up in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 5, our next logical question leading into chapter 6 should be, okay, we know what grace is, but what does it do for us? How does it benefit us? Okay, that's not um, a selfish question. It's important to know how... The the items that are are listed in the Bible, how these concepts and these ideas that Paul brings about, how they relate to us, we need to know that. And so those are not selfish questions to ask. And so as we ask that question, that's what Paul is going to address in these first 14 verses. And so I would encourage you, please, to have your Bibles out this morning. We're going to read these first 14 verses, and then we're going to pray and um, start our study. So Romans chapter 6, verse 1. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your word. I pray that you will protect it this morning, that you will honor it this morning, that above all else, you will be glorified through the truthful study of your word. I pray that you will help us to see what you have to say, that we will not tap into our emotions or our natural desires that benefit us to benefit our Uh, worldly desires and emotions, but rather that you would simply open our hearts and our minds to be receptive to you and to set everything else aside. I pray that you will forgive us of our sin in every way that we fall short of your word. And I pray that as we continue, we will grow closer and closer to you and gain a greater love and appreciation for you and what you have done for us. We pray this in your name, amen. So, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, um, if you have your Bibles out, and I hope you do, we're going to be moving around a lot today. Um, we have some things that we really need to talk about, we really need to explain in order to understand this passage, and so just buckle up and get ready, because we're, we're going to get started. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This mirrors... Um, something that he said in chapter 3 where he had just kind of started um, talking about grace and and he is posing this question that many of his opponents are posing him where they, they are saying, okay, well, if the grace of God abounds even in our sin, if God's righteousness abounds even amongst our unrighteousness, then shouldn't we sin so that righteousness can abound? It's this idea of cheap grace that we should do pretty much what we want because God has to forgive and make it right anyways. And Paul shot that down quickly in chapter three, and he does the same thing here in verse two. He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He says, you don't really understand. If you think that's what this is saying or that that's what you should do, then you haven't grasped this yet because if you are really under grace, you are dead to sin. You will not have that desire to sin as you did before. You will not be held captive to it. And so we go into verse three. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in newness of life. So I hope the word that popped out to you or a word that popped out to you is the word baptize or baptism. It was used a couple of times here. It is so important that we understand what that means. And many of you probably think you understand it very clearly. But chances are we probably don't. For a long time I know I didn't until I really did an in-depth study of this passage. Um, If you were to walk up to Anyone, anywhere you go—work, school, um, Walmart, anywhere—and you were to ask them, "Okay, are you a Christian?" And they were to say yes, and you were to say, "Okay, well, why? How do you know?" They would give you—I could—I don't have stats, but I guarantee you, especially in the South where we live, 90% of people would tell you one of three things, if not a combination of the three: "I pray the Sinner's Prayer," "I go to church," "I've been baptized." That's what you'll get, or you'll get a combination of the three, okay? And so what we need to understand is that baptism is um, the form in which we are saved, but it is not that baptism. That baptism is good. It is um, a commandment from the Word to be baptized in that way. But that is a symbol of the true baptism that should have already occurred in us. The same way that this cross necklace is not the cross that Jesus died on at Calvary. Rather, it is a representation. It is a symbol that is to remind me and those who see it of the work that was done. And so we need to talk about what the true baptism is and where it comes from so that we can understand this passage. So... The word baptizo, which is the Greek New Testament word that we get baptism from, um, was originally a non-religious word, um, and it was adopted by New Testament authors. And and when it was adopted, it kind of combined those non-religious origins of the word itself with this religious um, ritual of cleansing by water. And so we're going to look into kind of where those came from, biblical examples of that So the idea of using water for cleansing um, is just as common in the Old Testament days as it is now under the Mosaic laws. The children of Israel had times where um, if they had been around a dead body, if they were touched a dead body, if, if they were having certain medical issues, they were considered unclean. And part of the ritual to become clean again, which is to say they could go to the temple, they could gather with the other people of Israel was that they were supposed to bathe in a certain way, in a certain process, in water, usually in the river. They were supposed to bathe in a certain way. It was this idea of a spiritual cleansing, but it took place in a physical form. It was the cleansing of their physical bodies. And so that's kind of this Old Testament understanding that is combined with it. But then when we get to just the word itself, baptizo, um, we see that... Again, like in the same way, the word for gospel, which is euangelion, originally was not a religious word. It simply meant good news. The word baptizo literally means to dip, to plunge, to immerse, to overwhelm, um, words like that. And so by that concept, the first baptism that we see in Scripture, although the word is not used, is in Genesis chapter 7. I want us to look at that example. I want us to see what takes place, okay? So Genesis chapter 7, starting in verse 18, I want you to follow along with me. And this is, um, if you know that you're going to be very familiar with this passage, this is dealing with Noah in the ark. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who are with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So that's our first example of this immersion using water, this plunging using water. And then we're gonna go to our second example, which is in Exodus chapter 14. And we're going to read several verses right here. We could probably make this shorter, but I think these verses are amazing. I just think we need to read um, from, from starting in verse 16, chapter 14, verse 16, and moving on through the rest of the chapter. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. Pharaoh was considered the most powerful man on the planet in that time, at least in that known world. And it says here, God is saying, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. Why would God do such a thing? If, if there was any chance that they might change their mind and see and fear the Lord, Why would he harden their hearts? He explains that to us next. He says, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So notice the sovereignty of God in that passage. So as we continue on, that was just kind of a side note. I wanted us to see that. But as we continue on, verse 19, then the angel of God who was going before the hosts of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. I love these verses, 28 and 29. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground. I love that. I think that gives such a clear example of what these verses are talking about. And it's this common thread that we see this plunging, this immersing of the enemies of God in a way of saving God's people. And so that's our first real uses or examples that we see in scripture of this word baptizo used in a more spiritual sense. But then we get to Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. And this is where we actually see the word baptizo for the first time in the scriptures. so I'm going to read chapter one verses, or I'm sorry, chapter three, verses one through six. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel hair, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So this is when we first see this word baptizo showing up um, in Scripture. And so we're kind of left to wonder, okay, what exactly... Does this mean? What what is this leading to? Because if you know anything about the Old Testament, the Old Testament what it is is it is a shadowing of the coming Christ. Everything that happens in the Old Testament is some way or another an example, a shadowing of the coming Christ that is to fulfill all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so we saw those examples in Genesis and in Exodus. And it's a shadowing of something. But what is it shadowing? And then we see this word and we continue on. We see this word baptism. And then we go to Mark chapter 10, verse 35. And we see James and John talking to Jesus. And they say, and it says, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? So Christ here is talking about this baptism, but is he referring to that baptism that we just read in Matthew 3? No, he's not. He's referring to the true baptism. See, that baptism that occurs in Matthew chapter 3, if if baptism, as we saw in the examples of the Old Testament, if it is this cleansing of sin, this removal, this killing off of sin for the sake of cleansing and saving um, the, the child of God. Why is Jesus baptized? Did he need cleansing? Did he need sin removed from his life? No, he didn't. This was a symbol of the true and greater baptism that he would perform later. And so in these verses... He is referring to this baptism, but he doesn't explain what it is. He doesn't tell us exactly what this baptism looks like or where it's coming or when it's coming, but we'll see it not far after. So if you turn to Mark 15, starting in verse 33, we will see the true baptism of Christ that he is calling James and John to take part in with him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Ela, lema which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And he And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Jesus and Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So we see this true baptism that takes place. That Jesus is plunged, is dipped, is immersed in death and in doing so we are cleansed we are we are removed from this death but it's not finished starting in verse 16 it's, or I'm sorry chapter 16 verse 1 it says when the sabbath was past Mary Magdalene Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him and very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen They went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen, and he is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Jesus was plunged into death for our sake. That was the death that we deserved. But when he arose from that death and he walked out of the tomb, there was something different that took place. There was something that was different than the cleansing ritual of the Old Testament mosaic laws. And so these Old Testament references here, we can see how they shadow the coming baptism of Christ. I was reading an article from the Gospel Coalition. If you don't know about the Gospel Coalition, they have some amazing articles, videos. You can watch them on YouTube. Um, resources at your disposal that were put together by some amazing pastors and, and men and women of God. And uh, this article that I was reading, they said this, and I quote, Like Noah's ark, Jesus' cross will become a refuge for all who seek rest in him. And like Moses' staff, Jesus will be lifted up as to deliver his people from impending death. This, this is the shadowing. This is what this is shadowing, is this death of Christ that when he was resurrected, What it did was it took the sin that cleansed. And not only did it cleanse us of that sin then, but it took all of the consequences of sin for the children of Christ for the rest of eternity. And it sealed them back up in the grave when he walked out. So that it no longer has power. And that's what Paul is going to go on to say. So we need to understand that that is the true baptism as we continue in this passage. Verse five, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through two tells us that before Christ, we are dead in sin. It means that all we can do is sin. We can be righteous in no way. But when we come to be baptized by the blood of Christ, what that does is that makes our sin dead. Instead of being dead in sin, we are now dead to sin. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When it says for the death he died, he died to sin, again, it doesn't mean he was sinful. Remember that on the cross, he was paying for the consequences of our sins. And so if he died and resurrected, And left the sins that he bore behind in the tomb. That was our sins. And so it means it has no power over us. It can do nothing to us. It cannot control us. It cannot damn us as it was before. We have this everlasting, eternal hope. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. If it's dead, it can't control us. And so we don't have to obey its passions. We have no reason to anymore. How many of you have heard someone say something to the effect of, well, it's just the way that I am, or I'm too old to change now? First of all, that usually means that there's some type of active sin in our lives, and by the way, we all do that in some way or form. We may not say those exact words, but we all try to make excuses for our sin. Like, well, it's just too hard. We can't change. That means we have active sin that we're not confronting as we should. And that's either for one of two reasons. It's either because we do not see it as the damning instrument that it is, the, the very thing that can send us to hell. I hope you understand Satan cannot send you to hell. It is your sin that sends you to hell. And so we don't see it as the issue that it really is or we have fought with it for so long and failed for so long that we've just quit. We're too old to change. I've tried, didn't happen, oh well. It's just the way that I am. It's the way that God made me. That's what we love to say and so... I encourage you, if you were in that place, to read these 14 verses every day, multiple times a day. We'll talk about that in a little while. But as we end this section, verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And then he ties it back to the law that he's been talking about for these six chapters, how we are not under the law. And he explained what that meant. He went through the process of circumcision. And then he tells us we're not under the law, but we're under grace. And if we are under grace and grace is made possible through the saving work of Jesus on the cross, then sin no longer has control. It no longer binds us to itself, but those chains have been broken. It doesn't mean we won't struggle with temptation or with sin, and it doesn't mean we won't sin, but it means we don't have to be held captive by it. This is an unbelievable freedom that we have. And so as I get closer to my conclusion... I want to say this, there there are many people, including some of you who have been baptized several times because you feel like every time you fall away from God, even if it's just one mistake, or maybe it's a period of time where you weren't very faithful, you have to do that again in order to be made right with God again. Well, that comes from a couple of misunderstandings. The first misunderstanding is that the, the idea that there's something special about that water. Guys, it's not like at 10 a.m. every Sunday morning, all of a sudden we turn the jets on and something happens. That water is water the same way as any other water is water. There was nothing special about the Jordan when John the Baptist was baptizing people in it. It was what it represents that has power. That water is a physical representation of the spiritual baptism that we undergo in the blood of Christ. And the second misunderstanding is the belief that the saving work of Christ has not been good enough. If we're baptized by the blood, that is all we need. We don't need it again and again and again and again. Once we are baptized and once God has called us and set us apart for himself, again, it doesn't mean we won't sin. It doesn't mean we don't need to repent and ask forgiveness, but it means that there is nothing that can take us out of his hand. Let me encourage you by saying that never in your wildest dreams will you ever be powerful enough for your sin to put even the slightest strain on the grace of God. Never. Don't think so highly of yourself. That's actually a form of pride. We don't think about it that way, but that's a form of pride. This idea of making God smaller than he is because we are making us somehow bigger than we are when we think we are somehow powerful enough to outdo the work of God. That he has to continually come back and baptize us again and again and again because his blood wasn't good enough the first time. That's a lie. We're not that powerful. We could never be. So, now let me leave you with kind of two applications. I would encourage you to read these 14 verses every day this week. Get up 10 to 15 minutes earlier. I'll do it too. I know that's a strain on some of us who like to sleep in as late as possible. I mean, if I could, I'd be getting up about 15 minutes where I had to be somewhere. But I just I tried doing that, and I'm always late. So, But let's get up even earlier than we do. 10, 15 minutes. Let's read these verses. Read during your lunch break. Read when you get home. Read after you put the kids to bed and you're about to go to bed. Read it multiple times a day. Meditate on it. Type them out. Print it. Tape it on your bathroom mirror. Tape it on your dash so you can see it. Remind yourself of these verses as often as possible. Memorize them. And we don't talk about this enough, and that starts with me. But scripture memorization is unbelievably important because you are going to have moments driving down the road when you, well, you're not supposed to look it up on your phone. Okay, you can't, you know, you you can have it read to you, but it's a lot different when you're reading it to yourself. It has a little bit different effect. And when you read these verses, pray for two things. Number one, pray that God reveal to you your sin in the moment when it happens, but then pray that immediately he would bring these verses and the grace that is present to your mind to help you remember that even amongst your sin and the awareness of your sin it is still not enough to outdo the work of God. That will do two things for you. First, see if it doesn't do wonders in your battle with sin. When you know this word and you use the promises of this word to your disposal, when you don't take it for granted and you actually take advantage of it and use it for the wonderful thing that it is, Its nature is much stronger than our nature. It can do things for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And so see if that doesn't do absolute wonders for you in your battle with sin. And secondly, see if it doesn't give you an overwhelming sense of peace in a world that is frantic and is rapidly decaying. You live in a world that is dying by the second. No matter who you are, that will cause strain it will. But see if meditating and memorizing these verses doesn't give you an overwhelming source of peace. Okay. I know that was a lot. That was one application that was a bunch of different things. But the second application, if you don't know this freedom, you need to. You may think you're okay. I remember being in a point in my life where I thought I was doing pretty good. I thought I had some stuff figured out, and even the stuff I didn't have figured out, I didn't think it worried me that much. And now that I look back in that time in my life before I had a relationship with Christ, I realize that I was so paranoid all the time, and I just did everything that I could to push it back. It's a freedom that you won't fully understand until you experience it but you don't even have to take my word for it. Just read this and see if it's not evident on every page that you turn to. If you don't know that freedom, come find it right now. That can happen in your seat or at this altar. You can grab me or a friend or a leader or somebody on the worship team, or you can do it by yourself. There's no specific way that that has to look. It doesn't matter. But if you haven't been baptized with Christ, you have the opportunity right now for everything about your life change. You have the opportunity, the chance to go from someone who is currently dead in sin to someone who walks out of the tomb and seals your sin behind it because of the grace and the blood of Christ. If you don't know that, don't wait. Know that today. And it's all possible because of the baptism through the sacrifice of Christ that is sufficient enough to cover all All of our sins. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its overwhelming hope and truth. We may not always understand it. We will rarely be able to grasp it to its fullest extent, but Father, you've still made it possible for whatever level we can understand it at, for that to be enough. You tell us that everything that you give us in this word is enough to follow you joyfully and faithfully. And so I pray that that's what we do this morning because of learning more about your character and who you are and what you've done. Thank you for the true baptism that happened on the cross and in the tomb and leaving the tomb where you left our sin behind. I pray that you will remind us of that every day when we fall short. I pray that you'll remind us of that when our brothers and sisters fall short so that that will lead us to overwhelming love and patience and grace for ourselves and for each other. Thank you for your son who did this and made all of this possible. As we go throughout our week, may we give you glory and honor and praise in everything that we do and say. In your name we pray.